Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. day yesterday with the building filled with uh, kids trying out or being evaluated for basketball. One thing I noticed is that a lot of the parents couldn't resist picking up a ball and shooting at the hoops. And You knew the guys who were good. They didn't have to tell you. They just bragged with their, with their jump shot. I mean, there's something about a guy who can just stand at the three-point line and just pop a man. So I decided I wasn't going to play that game and brag about this. <laughs> Here's how you know you're getting old when you stand at the three-point three line. And the problem isn't that you can't reach the basket anymore. Problem is you can't even see the basket anymore. <laughs> but uh, most of us think about uh, humility in terms of not bragging. You know, the idea is that you have an ability or you have something others admire, and you're not going to brag about it. You're not going to tell them about it, after all. Uh, and that, that would be boastful, but you, you know, we, we think about humility as sort of a, a, a negative quality. Just, just don't brag a lot about yourself. Uh, and so when we come to a passage like uh, uh, Colossians 3.12, and one of the things Paul says is put on humility, uh, we, we look at that and say, well, okay, I'm, 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 I guess I'm pretty humble. I don't brag a lot about things, and I think I could be pretty proud of my humility. I, I do so well at it. So... Uh, so we, we, we sort of go through that, and we, and we miss the point that Paul is making because humility is one of those things that connects us with the person of Jesus Christ in a vital and profound way. Um, you, you know that in, in Colossians, as we've been reading it, Paul has been uh, spending the whole letter basically giving us clarity in a murky world a world that's filled with competing philosophies and ideas and, and ways to live. And, and Paul says, no, you've got to keep your focus on Christ, keep your focus on Jesus. After all, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the body of the church. Keep your focus on him. Don't be led astray by, by human philosophy, but rather as you receive Christ, so walk ye in him. And one of the things that means is that you will set your mind on things above, not on things of earth, that your heart and your affections will be focused on Jesus Christ, on heaven above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So that's, that's what we're doing in this whole series, is trying to keep our minds focused on Christ, to have that kind of clarity in a world that's filled with a lot of swirling, murky, philosophical ideas about how we ought to live. And in uh, conjunction with that, we've been looking at Colossians 3.12, using that as our launching pad for the things that uh, will be a part of our lives when we have our focus on Christ. Um, we will have compassionate hearts, we'll have kindness, and uh, this morning we look at put on humility, and what does it mean to have humility? Now, our, our uh, approach, our strategy in understanding these things has been to look at Jesus, to say what in the life and teaching of Jesus will help us understand what, what it means, in our case this morning, to put on humility, 
Where do we see humility in the life of Christ? And of course, my mind, your mind as well, goes straight to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. I'll just summarize that uh, for you, but it, it basically says that Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, though he was equal with God, though Jesus um, held all the prerogatives of deity, though all the glory of heaven belonged to him, he didn't consider this deity um, and, and something to be held on to, but rather he emptied himself. And he came to earth and he took upon himself the fashion of a man being found like a, a, as a human being. This is the incarnation. The Word became flesh, and with the Word becoming flesh, he became a servant. He became a servant. Now, so far, this is a marvelous story of how uh, God himself in the, in the second person, God the Son, came to earth, incarnate in the flesh, becomes a servant, but so far it's a great story, but it hasn't changed our lives yet. Our salvation hinges on what comes next. I think it's uh, like verse 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. Verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Being the Son of God, glory of heaven his, emptied that, became a servant, fantastic, but to get to the cross, Christ humbled himself. You start to see that humility isn't just not bragging, but humility is what links the glory of heaven to the eff effective nature of the cross. It is humility that links the majesty of who Jesus Christ is in all eternity with his saving work for us on the cross. And so when Paul says, put on humility, he's not saying, well, just have an attitude where you're not going to brag. He's saying, put on that attitude that led Jesus Christ to the cross for our salvation. Now humility is much more than just a nice thing to have. Now humility is an essential aspect of knowing, loving, serving, walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so we long to have that kind of humility. Now, evidently, humility was something that um, was quite a factor in the ministry of Jesus and, and particularly with the disciples because it keeps coming up time and time again. Let me refer you to, and, and turn with me, to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, in, in um, Luke uh, chapter 9, we, um, uh, uh, we have uh, Peter confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, then Jesus goes up to the mountain of transfiguration. You know what the mountain of transfiguration is? It falls right in the middle, basically the middle of the gospel narrative, in the middle of the chronology of the ministry of Jesus. But right there in the middle... Um, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, takes three disciples with him, and while he is there, the glory of Christ is made known. There he is seen in all the majestic glory that belongs to him. 
It's almost as if in the first half of his ministry, people are saying, who is this guy? What's going on here? Peter finally gets an inkling of it. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Sort of doesn't understand what that means, but at least he's starting in the right direction. And so the glory of Christ is revealed in the middle of his earthly ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration. That glory then moves straight to the cross in the second half of the gospel narrative. So in Luke chapter 9, Christ has been glorified on the mountain. He has come down immediately. The, um, uh, the, the, the crowds come to him. There's a guy there. He says, hey, look, my son's sick. He's possessed by a devil, whatever it is. You know, uh, you know you've, you've got to heal him. I asked your disciples to, and they could not. Just keep that in mind. And so Jesus um, heals, heals the boy, and that, that's fine. And that brings us to where we are in Luke chapter 9, verse 48. So remember what's going on here. The glory of Christ made manifest the inability of the disciples to heal a boy brought to them. And so in verse 46, did I say 8? I'm hoping that's a 6. Number after it's a 7, so that, okay. 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I love that. An argument starts among the disciples. Who's the greatest disciple? I'm trying to figure out what does that look like? You know, they're walking down the, the highway with Jesus, you know, and, and all this. And then what, what, what happens? Peter turns to John and says, I'm greater than you are. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yes, I'm, I'm the greatest, great, greatest disciple. I'm, I'm the greatest disciple because I confess Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> John says, well, you know, Pete, I remember that thing about the boat, how you got out of the boat and started to sink. How's that, webfoot? <laughs> oh, you don't understand. At least I got on the water and I walked about 10 yards. You know, I was doing pretty good. You stayed in the boat. Yeah, right where somebody with any kind of sense would have been. You know, I'm the greatest disciple. Somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 I'm the greatest disciple. Because you remember when you guys didn't have enough faith to, uh, to feed the multitude, the 5,000, you, 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 you couldn't feed them. You remember you guys didn't have the faith. I knew he could do it. I knew all along. I was just going along with you guys because I didn't want to embarrass you. But, but, you know, point of fact, I think I'm the greatest disciple because, after all, I, I was in there and I, and I knew he could do it. No. Oh, no, no, no. I saw you in the boat when, when the waves came up, and, and you were afraid, and everybody was afraid. You're all going, we're going to drown, we're going to drown, we're going to drown. <laughs> I missed my calling. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, and, I, and I saw you doing that while you all, all you guys were afraid you were going to drown. I went and found Jesus in the front of the boat. And Jesus... These guys are afraid. Wouldn't you like to still the storm now? I know you can do it. <laughs> I mean, what kind of argument is this? These guys had just failed to heal a boy. What are they going to say? You know, when we failed to heal that boy, I failed less than you did. <laughs> I almost got him. <laughs> you weren't even close. I mean, this is a silly thing. An argument arose about who was the greatest in the kingdom? Come on. It's sort of like church people today who start arguing about 
who's the greatest in the church? Oh, we don't use that language, but it's, it's, it's the kind of thing of, you know, why should I have to fill in the blank? I don't need to do that. After all, I am above such things. Why not him? I'm going to point out here, but I realized I'd be, I'd be pointing at somebody and, you know, I'd have to pay for that. So, but, uh, you know, what, what about this, this person over here? Let them do it. You know, it's not my job to do it. I'm, I'm too important for that. I want you to know this church makes me feel like somebody. It really does. Because every time I see one of those little cellophane wrappers for the mints on the floor and I pick it up, I know that some kid or somebody looked at that and said, somebody's going to pick that up. And I go, pick it up and I feel like somebody and I want to I appreciate you for it. but you know whenever we have this attitude of you know something's beneath me I'm, I'm too I'm too exalted for this kind of thing we're having arguments silly arguments about who is the greatest in the kingdom so these disciples are having this kind of argument who's the greatest in the kingdom Jesus verse 47 now Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and Put him by his side. I, I'm, I'm thinking this is a little boy. It could have been a little girl, but I think it's a little boy. Kid has a baseball hat on. Backwards. Heads, hair is flying all over the place, and he's got a ball glove, a little ratty ball glove curled up in his arm, and, and he's, just, he's just clueless. His shirt is untucked. No, that would be in style. His shirt is half untucked. And, uh, of course, that might be in style, too. I don't know. Shoes are untied, and his mother is appalled. You know, oh, no, why did he pull him up? You know, you know. And, you know so, you, so you got this kid. You do understand, children in Jewish society were on the bottom rung of the family. It wasn't be seen, not heard. It was don't be heard, don't be seen, don't get in the way. They didn't have any rights, privileges, you know, all those kinds of things that, that we talk about today. So, you know, at the very bottom rung of, of society in, in the family structure, Jesus takes this child, puts him in front of them, and he says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Why? Why is it hard to get nursery workers in church? When Jesus says, you receive a little child, you receive me. You want to go hug Jesus? You want to go exalt Jesus? You want to go spend time with Jesus? He looks at this little child. says, you, you receive this, this kid. You're receiving me. That's, that's what we're talking about in the kingdom. You know, taking care of and ministering and receiving little children. So whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see how Jesus has linked up the one who sent him, the glory of the Father, the very glory of heaven. He's linked that up to the humility that is willing to receive a little child. Suddenly, humility isn't just a nice add-on. Humility is essential, a profound essential ingredient to knowing the glory of God. I mean, what are you going to substitute for humility? Are you going to substitute bragging? What are you going to do? Stand before the glory of God and say, God, here I am. Aren't you glad? <laughs> you know, I've got a little glory to add to your heaven. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so um, Jesus goes on to say, he says, for he who is least among you all, 
is the one who is great. Jesus never did get it right. You want to live, you got to die. You want to be great, you got to be the least. You want to be first, you got to be last. So the one who is least among you, the one who is willing and, and involved and invested in, in the littlest things for the sake of ministry and service, that's who we're talking about. That, that, that's the one we're really talking about. So the, the disciples are arguing, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus, without using the word humility, says the, the greatest person is the person who's humble to the point of service and the point of obeying what I've asked him to do. That's what, that's what I'm looking for. Now, this continues to be a problem with the disciples because if you turn with me now to Luke chapter 22, Look, in chapter 22, where, where we are right now is we're between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is taking that walk from the intimate fellowship with his disciples. He's walking to the garden where he will be betrayed and where he will be arrested, and the events of the crucifixion will just begin to work uh, from that point. So that's where we are. Jesus is, is on his way with his disciples to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, you won't believe this. Understand, and, and, and you're, you're, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Come on! You know, how long do you have to walk with Jesus before you begin to understand that his kingdom doesn't operate with these kinds of categories? You know, they start, you know, I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. You know, um, you can't be the greatest. Why not? Because I'm the greatest. And he said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That is, the, in, in the Gentile world, if you were a lord or you were a rich guy, um, you, you used your money to, to sort of do community service and to uh, do good works and to support charity, uh, and, and you'd be called a benefactor, and everybody would say, oh, what a great man he is. He supports the work. Uh, this is how synagogues were, were supported, for example. And so, you know, oh, what a great benefactor. He, he pays the way so the rest of us can have a synagogue. Oh, wonderful. And, 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 and among the kings and Gentiles, it's even worse, but they exercise lordship, and they're called benefactors. Verse 26, but not so with you. Let, let's just... Put that over every door in the church, going in and coming out. Let's put it on a magnet and put it on our cars or something. Not so with you. Do you understand how greatly the church would be changed in its functioning and its life and its fellowship if we got that straight in our heads that every time we try to import one of these values of the world and one of these things that the world says we've got to have or one of these patterns of life that the world says are okay, if we would just understand the words of Jesus, not so with you. Let the Gentiles do that. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. 
For who is the greater one who reclines at table and one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as one who serves. Now we're starting to understand Jesus' constant answer to those who would aggrandize themselves was to say, serve the least among you. Serve, be obedient, even unto death, the death of a cross. That's what humility means. Now, Jesus gives us an example of that. It, it takes place chronologically earlier than this uh, last passage we read. But look at John chapter 13. Uh, starting at verse 1 or so and reading, reading down. Folks, if you can read this passage of Scripture and your life does not change, you have not read this passage of Scripture. If you, if you can just go through these verses and they don't have a radical impact on your life, you have not read these verses. Let's read them together. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. When Jesus knew that the next step was the cross, but he was going out of the world and he was going back to the Father. Where did he come from? He'd come from the Father, so that later. Come from the Father, he's going to the Father. He'd come from the glory of heaven. He's returning to the glory of heaven. But between the glory in the past and the glory in the future, there is a cross, and that is his hour. The hour had come. The cross loomed before him. Oh, if ever there was a man who could have said, don't bother me, I'm busy right now. If ever there was someone who said, I, I don't have time for you, there's something on my schedule right now. If there was ever a man who could have pleaded some greater thing to be done and could have dismissed you, it was Jesus. But at that moment, knowing that his hour to return to the Father had come, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He never stopped loving them. Not when they argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Not when they kept arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. He kept loving them and loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the very end. So th this, is, this is where Jesus is, knowing the glory of the Father, the cross before him, and yet loving his disciples during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So um, Judas is, is already thinking, how can I lead the authorities to Jesus at, right, at the right moment when the crowds aren't around uh, and uh, they can come and arrest him with, without fearing the crowd? So Judas is already thinking about how he can betray Jesus. And uh, this has already happened. So now you got this and you have Jesus faithful, loving um, his, his own, committed to the glory of the Father, returning to the Father, knowing the cross lies before him. You have Judas Iscariot thinking, how can I betray him? How can I turn him in over to the authorities? In verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So now you have this picture of the glorious Christ and the absolute evil of Judas. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel around his waist. The king of glory set aside his garments and his rights and his prerogatives. The king of glory for his robe wore a towel and for an orb he took a basin and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, the disciples are not sitting on the chair that you see at a shoeshine stand. You know what I'm talking about? You don't? Okay. You, you, you go wherever they are, airports and places. Old movies. You see them in old movies. I know that. But uh, there, there, there's a chair elevated on a platform so that the shoeshine guy uh, doesn't have to bend over too far, and your feet are right there, and he's just, you know, shining away and taking care of things, and you're up there on a chair. And that's pretty easy to do. No, the disciples are not on an elevated chair. They're not even on chair chairs. They're lying down. Their feet are trailing behind them. And so Jesus gets up, and with the towel and with the water, he comes to the feet of the first disciple. And the only way to wash those feet is to get down on your hands and your knees and to wash their feet. And there the king of glory, who loved us to the very end, on his hands and knees, washed our feet. Well, he comes to Peter, starts to wash their feet. Comes to Simon Peter, who says, Lord, you know, do you wash my feet? Jesus says, I do this. You don't understand it, but you'll understand later. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Can't you just see Jesus going, oh, Peter, not, a, not again. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter says, ah, then, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. I mean, who is this guy? Jesus, you're wrong to wash my feet. Jesus, you're wrong to wash only my feet. I mean, you can't please him. And Jesus explains, the one who's bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, you, not all of you are clean. Folks, Judas Iscariot is still there. And every indication of Scripture is that Jesus washed his feet. He came to the feet of Peter, and Peter said, No, no, the, the Lord doesn't wash my feet. Yep, Peter, I do. That's what I do. Came to the feet of Matthew, and Matthew said, oh, You know, my Lord, he, he, he saved me from the tax tables. Washing my feet, I, I, I don't know what to make of that. Came to the feet of John, the beloved disciple, who so adored Jesus. And he said, my, my friend, my best friend, washing my feet, I don't know. Came to the feet of Judas, began to wash the feet of Judas. And Judas led him. Judas led him. And Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. If ever there was a man who could have said, not you, if there ever was a man who could have said, Judas, not until you repent, if there was ever someone who could have said, Judas, I'll wash your feet, but your heart's not right, 
Judas, I washed your feet, but I've got to see some result from that. If there was ever anyone who could have washed the feet of another man with conditions, it was Jesus kneeling on his hands and knees before Judas Iscariot. Where do we get off so proud that we can't kneel before one another, love one another that way? He washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. And he said, do you know what I've done? When he got done, put his robes back on. He said, do you know what I've done? He said, you call me Lord and Master. And rightly so. That's who I am. I'm your Lord and Master. But if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. And suddenly we understand what humility is. Humility lives out of the glory of the Father and loves the way Jesus loves, serves the way Jesus served, and puts no limitation or condition upon that loving service for the sake of others. Now we start to understand why Paul in Colossians says, put on humility. Because he's saying, put on Jesus Christ. Start looking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, walking like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, doing like Jesus. Put on humility. Not, not, not to just stop bragging, but to start serving and to loving others. You know, I... I'm not going to say I hate what God has been doing, but it's a, it's a colloquial expression. I, I am, um, I'm fearful of what God is doing lately because when, when we came to that, that uh, passage and, and Paul said, put on a compassionate heart, uh, the first thing God did was, was show me my lack of compassion and, and compassion in somebody else. And when he said, put on kindness, I started seeing ways in which others were being kind and I was not being, being kind. And now we come to this, he says, put on humility by getting on your hands and knees and wash the feet of others. And I'm scared to death what God's going to do this week. <laughs> we may never again preach on lay down your life for a friend. <laughs> But at some point this week, the Holy Spirit is going to ask you to get on your hands and knees and wash somebody's feet. And it's not going to be somebody you choose. It's going to be the closest thing to Judas Iscariot that you can think of. The Holy Spirit's going to ask you to do that, and it will be our joy and it will be our privilege to be found looking a little bit like Jesus as we put on humility. Because Christ not only emptied himself and became a servant, he humbled himself and went to the cross that we might know the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, again, these, these things are way beyond us. We lack the courage. We lack the trust. But you are sufficient for all these things, and you give us the Holy Spirit, the perfect resource to live in holiness and righteousness and to walk in humility. So, 
Father, I pray for the brothers and sisters here this morning who, for whom this is a struggle. I pray that you give joy in service, joy in, in, in reaching out to those who don't deserve it. Joy, Father, in being found a servant in the name of Jesus Christ. That person here this morning who does not know Jesus, Father, let this be the moment they come to understand he's more than just a name in a book. He's a living Savior. Father, let this be the moment. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.